It's so frustrating to me that we are again going to play this like, if only we can convince the Kremlin or some piece of the Kremlin, like there's some guys somewhere, the new Medvedev, you know, you can peel off and create like a moderate wing. No, that doesn't exist. It's not going to happen. They're poisoning their opponents. They're poisoning Russians outside of Russia. They're assassinating people wherever they feel like it, including possibly in American soil. This is not a, if only you can convince them that they want to have a a nice dinner with us, then we're all going to be friends again country. Under Putin, it is not going to change. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. On last week's Roundup, both Mike and Susan talked about how we've spent the last four years focused on what's been happening in our domestic policy as a result of Donald Trump. And now we're starting to look back up at what's happening throughout the world as the Biden administration tries to rebuild the United States standing on the world stage. One of the most important things happening right now on the foreign policy front is a surge of Russian forces at the Ukrainian border. So here to walk us through the ongoing conflict between the two countries, what these recent troop movements might mean, and how they can impact the United States and the rest of the world is Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, and other publications. And she's the lead author of a newsletter called greatpower.us, which I highly recommend. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Molly, welcome back, and thanks for making the time today. Thanks for having me. So the last time you were on with John Seifer, we were talking about information warfare and cyber attacks. But today is about real, physical, geopolitical conflict or potential conflict that's happening right now with the amassment of Russian ground troops on the Ukraine border. So before I ask you what they're doing there, Why don't we start with the broader conflict and how we got here? Uh, So would you briefly walk us through the timeline of major events, starting with the one people are probably most familiar with, which is Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, and what has changed since then? I'm going to broaden that timeline out just a bit because I think it's important we often start looking at that point and it's it's the broader context that kind of puts the yeah. so what should we do about it spin on it at the end but basically you know putin comes to power year 2000 new year's eve yada yada spends a lot of time doing internal consolidation 2006 is sort of refocusing outward in 2007 he gives this speech at the munich security conference sort of announcing hey we're back and we're tired of being beat upon by you westerners and it's no longer a unipolar world and everybody's sort of like huh what does that mean And very soon thereafter, um, there's this uh, event in Estonia, the first sort of big Russian state cyber attack, which we talked about a little bit in the the last show, um, on Estonia, which was uh, parallel to sort of a ground action where they had stirred up some unrest about a local event that was happening. So you have these sort of parallel events of massive state cyber attack and sort of local uprising in Tallinn in the capital. Um, And it was really just sort of this announcement that all of the things the KGB-led Soviet Union had always dreamed about uh, were going to be happening in new and exciting fashion. But I think, again, we sort of pawn these warnings off and hope that that Russia will behave better. 
in August 2008, just before the end of the Bush administration, um, just before the election in 2008, um, during the opening ceremonies of the Beijing Olympics, um, Russia invaded Georgia, its uh, neighbor to the south. Uh, in this sort of brief five-day war, um, the purpose of which they very clearly stated later was to keep Georgia out of NATO. The Bush administration had been really pushing to get Ukraine and Georgia concrete membership action plans to get into NATO. Um, so you have the Obama administration coming in at the beginning of uh, 2009, dealing with the out, you know sort of fallout of this bizarre territory-seizing um, invasion by Russia, which no one really wanted to deal with, and especially not in the context of they were envisioning this reset policy as a, a sort of key, uh, you know, uh, column of their foreign policy in the world. Um, the the war that Russia had just caused didn't really yeah. fit nicely into yeah. that agenda. So everybody just tried to pretend like it didn't happen. And then everything you had leading up through, you know, this period where every new administration comes in and sort of gets the binder and looks through the binder and says, you know, oh, it makes so much sense. Like, if only we can convince Russia, they just need to be friends with the West and be in the West. And then everybody will get along and we just need to explain this to them and it'll be fine. And you waste two years doing that and then you get burned and then something terrible happens. Um you know, this sort of happens through the Obama administration. There's a lot of cooperation, a lot of exchanges, a lot of sharing, a lot of things that get downplayed that are important in the region around Russia in order to, uh, you know, cement this this sharing environment with Russia. Uh, at the end of which you have the Sochi Olympics in 2014, followed very soon after by the uh, invasion by green men, unmarked soldiers um, of Russia. Uh, of Crimea, of the peninsula, of the Crimean Peninsula, um, which was annexed three weeks later by Russia, which really then became this pivotal moment for everybody outside of, holy shit, this is this new... Holy shit, they did it. Wow. Well, and yeah, first change of, of borders in Europe by force since World War II, which is not a small thing to say. Um, and the fact that we then just sort of have to ignore it because they then started that, you know, Russia started this conflict in eastern Ukraine with their proxy forces, as we will air quotes them, because then the the fighting in the east really distracted. Like there's no one even talks about Crimea or returning Crimea anymore because there's this other thing we have to worry about. So there's just been this cascading series of events. But the conflicts in the east, the sort of ongoing conflicts in the east um, also create a tremendous amount of political leverage for Russia over Ukraine, over the the post-revolution Ukraine that is trying to reform, that is trying to rebuild, that has had to rebuild its armed forces from nothing because of the state uh, of the army when Yanukovych had to flee the country, the former president of Ukraine, uh, now residing in Russia in some sad dacha somewhere. Uh, you know, they've had to rebuild their entire army from scratch during a hot war with a very uh, aggressive, revanchist neighbor. Um, and have done that in in relatively remarkable fashion, with a lot of help from outside. But but what they have done is not insignificant. Um, but again, we're at this point where sort of the six year the six year intervals, as right. it turns out, but right. they missed one for COVID, <laughs> where there seems to be this large buildup of Russian military forces on the border before the invasion of Georgia in 2008 under the guise of a military exercise, air quotes. There was about 100,000 forces moved to the Georgian border, uh, similar before the invasion of Crimea. And right now you have about 80,000 Russian troops um, in Crimea, which is still technically Ukraine, but they'll call it Russia, um, and on the border in the east. And 
there's so it's it's a huge amount of of forces. Uh, obviously, this is inside Russia, so Russia just sort of shrugs and says, "Hey, it's Russia. We can move our guys wherever we want." They're saying it's part of this this normal military exercise cycle that they do, but um, there's a lot of stuff moving out of cycle that doesn't usually move the way that it's moving. Um, it is still back at. Uh, what you know, sort of what we would call staging areas, as opposed to you know forward deployed, but very much in an aggressive posture that could quickly change and go another way. They've moved a ton of stuff from the Caspian Sea to the Black Sea, um, which is part of this. Uh, you know, Russia really views the Black Sea as uh, a strategic lily pad for all of its work in um, the Mediterranean and south into Africa and and around into the Baltic Sea. So there's a lot of stuff moving that is unusual, that is very serious, that is causing a lot of headaches. Um, And the Ukrainians are, you know, for them, it's sort of both the elevated level of concern and the, hey, it's not actually different than right now where we're fighting this war and no one's helping us. Um, But there's concerns about a new uh, invasion sort of across the south of Ukraine to connect this occupied eastern area um, and the uh, the Crimean Peninsula um, sort of take the entire seacoast potentially um, to cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea, which would obviously be um, an extremely significant strategic move if it were to happen. First of all, very briefly, strategic lily bad. I understand what you mean, but just for our listeners, can you clarify yeah. what that what that is? So when, you know, Russia has always based its Black Sea Fleet, which is one of its naval units, um, in uh, Sevastopol in Crimea. So even after Ukraine was independent, they had signed some leasing agreement to keep the port so they could keep their uh, warm water navy there because they needed um, uh, access to the Black Sea for their for their ships in a deep water port. So there had always been Russian stuff there. But since the annexation of Crimea, they've really beefed up how they use this territory um, to uh, stage all of their military activities in Syria, which are extremely significant. There's been, an, you know, if you map it back from basically 2012 onward, an extremely aggressive uh, movement of military equipment, uh, men and materiel through the Bosporus, uh, you know, out the Black Sea through the Bosporus to Syria in the Eastern Mediterranean, and now around to Libya as well, where the Russians have a lot going on. Um, they move stuff then sort of downward um, through North Africa into Sub-Saharan Africa as well. Um, but Russia has a lot of a, a lot of activity. They've basically totally realigned the the political and strategic structure of the Middle East with their military activities um, in Syria and around Iraq um, and now in Libya as well, and uh, have an aggressive footprint across the southern Mediterranean of their own ships and, and military um, uh, uh, equipment. Um, and they're doing all sorts of weird mercenary partnership things and selling a lot of weapons in um, other parts of Africa. But having that enhanced footprint in the Black Sea is where they stage all of this from. And um, it shouldn't seem like it's so like it's it's such a significant change, but it has been a significant change in how they are, uh, you know, aggressively moving. Um, military assets um, and and sort of commercial and economic assets also out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean. You know, the longtime Soviet and now Russian, uh, you know, sort of uh, hysteria point is the ins- we're being encircled by NATO, right? right. And if you right. look at the map, it's like one twentieth of their border actually touches any NATO thing. Um, but this uh, expansion of the Russian footprint 
and and aggressively in the Black Sea, which is only you know there's like a little piece of it that's Russia, but then they annexed the part of Georgia that that a lot of which borders the Black Sea, <laughs> the Black sea. Right. and they bought a lot of the coastline in Bulgaria using private assets, um, and they have new partnerships with Turkey. So there's like this really aggressive uh, attempt to control completely the Black Sea as like a lake of Russia. Um, and then the way that they've been posturing around the Southern Mediterranean, uh, I mean, if you start looking at the map, it's in fact NATO that's being, in, and they have, <laughs> you know, their their new Arctic stuff and all the new military bases they've been opening there. Um, and the fact that they've been conducting, you know, joint uh, naval exercises with the Chinese and the Egyptians in the Black Sea, in the Baltic Sea, none of these things make sense uh, in a strategic sense for us. Um but the, the encirclement starts to look more like NATO and less like Russia. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, we don't really look at this map this way that often. And I think it's a part of why we view Ukraine and our own policy as this kind of island um, when in a strategic sense, um, it is like the Black Sea strategic region that we need to understand and why Ukraine is a part of that, why Georgia is a part of that. Um, how we need to be much more aggressively engaged there in terms of how we think of our posture and our presence and what we're using it for. Um, the Chinese certainly do. It's a key piece of the Silk Road strategy as well. Um, and we just don't have a strategy or a policy to deal with this in a less, it all depends on Russian behavior way. And I think a lot of us would like to see that. You mentioned moving stuff around. And by stuff, we're talking about not just people, although 20%, CNN just reported 20% of uh, Russia's ground forces are now near the Ukrainian border. It depends on how you count. But yeah, basically, there's a significant portion of their of their military, sort of their land power assets are um, now near the Ukrainian border. And during exercise season, um, this is not unusual that they do these. I mean, when we do, when NATO does a military exercise, if it has 40,000 people, it's like, holy shit, we've just done the biggest military exercise in history. Um, and the Russians routinely do these because they're all internal to Russia, right? So, yeah. so they have easier ability to move things around. Um, they routinely do these enormous mobilization exercises. Um, but this is a significant, it, it, the units that are being moved. This is not normal. It's not just the conscripts. It's the serious elite airborne forces. It has the command and control structure structure behind them. It has the artillery units and the tank units. Um, the field hospitals are being constructed. Um, so there's a lot more. So this is, this is like there. sort of a, you know, just give the order situation and they're far more prepared for some kind of direct engagement. Exactly. It's the, just give the order. And it's also the, then the potential for conflict to break out anyway, is so much higher. And if you're the Russians, the way they've been talking about this the last few weeks, because the information warfare piece is a key part for them, right. um, has been this, uh, the Ukrainians are going to provoke a conflict by attacking us. Uh, you know, the, a lot of that language, which is exactly the same stuff they tried to say about Georgia in 2008. Um, and they're trying to say that, you know, the NATO military exercises or the training that the U.S. does in Ukraine is the provocation. And this is going to be they're st you know, they're training the Ukrainians for sabotage operations. And and this is what's going to cause the conflict. Um, and uh, I think, um, you know, so they like they like set the stage for this. But when there's two militaries facing off against each other, you know, the potential for something dumb to happen is very real. But that being said, I think there's two other aspects of this that are important. You know, I, I, I don't spend as much time 
thinking about some of this because I just don't really know that it really matters. But there is always these like, maybe Putin doesn't want a conflict. It's really all about, you know, the political posture and forcing the diplomatic concessions, which he's already gotten this week. Um, but uh, but then, you know, guys in the military are really trying to push this conflict because they believe that they should have taken the south of Ukraine in the last push, you know. And uh, and so, like, maybe one of them will trigger the war because they really want to have this fight. I don't know, you know. But then um, the the sort of the staging of the appearance of conflict coming from wherever the Ukrainians have um, tons of intercepts of the uh, goons that are in the east who are the local figureheads who are very much in in touch with their Russian commanders um, via their cell phones all the time. Um, So they have tons of intercepts of these conversations and they very strategically put a few out this week that were the local guys talking to somebody in Russia and the somebody in Russia is like, hey, you need to fire on this position. And the local guy is like, but that's one of our positions. And my guy, you know, whoever is there. And the guy in Russia is like, yeah, shoot it anyway. And so that they've they've sort of showed already that there have been these sort of, pro, you know, provocations, but by the Russians on Russian positions to justify action against the Ukrainians. Um, so I think both sides are really trying to show somebody's going to do some dirty tricks to start this war. And when you're in this position, obviously, um, it's already very tense. There's a, there's a powder keg. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about the, the end game here. Um, so it, it looks like Putin has, and correct me if I'm wrong, left his intentions ambiguous, uh, from the reporting on this, we could be looking at anything from maybe he's trying to test Biden's resolve to see, you know, what he can get away with to just intimidating Ukraine or, like you said, possibly building for another invasion. Um, can you help us think through what uh, some of these different possible outcomes might mean, not just for the region, but for the United States in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think that one of the key differences between sort of our strategic mindset and how the Russians think is just constant contingency planning, right? Like you don't build for the one plan, you build for many possibilities so that you have them in case you decide to use them. Yeah. Um, and I think in this case, uh, in terms of the, have they decided to pull the trigger yet? No, I don't think that that's there. But, uh, you know, all the parts are obviously in place should they decide to do this. Um, I think for now, I think Putin's goal was to get Biden to pick up the phone and call him, which has happened. And you had this offering of the summit and, oh, can't we all just get along? Now we're going to retaliate against you for election things and solar winds, but we're not going to do as much as we could have because we're showing you that this is a good faith outreach again. And um, the response from the Russians has been, oh, oh, you're going to do this? Well, now we're going to do more things and we're going to move more stuff and we're going to be more blustery. And this is just kind of how they are. But there was like this little five paragraph section of some article writing up the new sanctions that were announced, um, the sort of very aggressive package of things that was announced by the administration yesterday. And it was essentially, even though we know these sanctions aren't really going to do anything measurable to Russia, they are important. And the Russians view them as a provocation uh, you know, an escalation yeah. of tension. So we don't want your stupid summit now. Right. And in order to force the summit, uh, we're going to escalate more in Ukraine because this is what we think gets us what we want. And, you know, as a good faith gesture, the U.S. decided not to send the two warships it was going to send to the Black Sea to support Ukraine. 
Um, uh, so, so we're not doing the one thing we should have been doing to actually materially support Ukraine. Uh, instead, we're just going to like roll over and sit here. And it's just this, this kind of thinking is how we get trapped in these cycles that the Kremlin does so well to set the stage for and control, which is like, they, you know, we offer some sort of dialogue. They escalate to force us back to the position of the dialogue being something that's like an awesome thing that we got when it was the thing that we were offering in the first place, right? And it's just absurd. Like the whole cycle is completely absurd and kind of disappointed in where we are right now. You know, it's it's a like it's a very different approach and mindset. I don't think we need to pointlessly escalate against the Russians, but I do think we need to understand that we have very different views of what these types of power projection are for, what they are used to achieve, um, and how you stand up to them. And um, I'm not sure that uh, right now that I'm seeing significant changes from um, this same team in the last go round. So you mentioned those two destroyers. We should we should probably talk about that a little bit because in early April, the Pentagon uh, notified Turkey about a tentative transit of two American Navy destroyers into the Black Sea, and then those plans were scrapped last week. So what impact would that move have had on the situation if they if it had gone forward and should it have gone forward? Or would that have been seen as a provocation? Basically, like in this situation, you know, Russia's moved its entire freaking military to the Ukrainian border yeah. and, and we retask like one satellite and they're like, it's a provocation, NATO. Uh, so I think we all just need to understand that the language of the provocation is silly. Sure. Um, but uh, no, the you know, we have uh, as part of the various neg- agreements that govern the Black Sea and, and the transit to and from. Uh, we have a certain number of days that we are allowed to deploy our stuff to the Black Sea. Uh, per year. We don't even use what we have. Um, It is very common for us to send, uh, you know, regular patrols of one or two vessels um, through the Black Sea, especially to visit uh, allies and partners like the Georgians and the Ukrainians um, and the Bulgarians, you know, sometimes to do these exercises, sometimes just to sort of hang out and say hello. It's an important NATO presence there to have American warships, British warships, whoever wants to come through and wave the flag. Um, It's an important sign that we take our posture there seriously and we're not just like leaving it to the Russians. Um, And, you know, the Russian response to this, oh, we don't want your things anymore exchange this week was they've now announced this hasn't been like 100 percent confirmed. So I'll leave it, you know, in the I think so, but I'm going to wait for the official notifications. But um, they sent notification that uh, they are cl- so so it, it, between Crimea and Russia. There's like this little piece of uh, sort of spur of the Black Sea called the Sea of Azov, um, which uh, it, the Ukrainians need to maintain access to to access Mariupol and other critical commercial and, and military ports in um, the the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, but it's the access to it is now very much controlled by Russia because they have built a bridge across the Kerch Strait. This is which, the Kerch Strait, yeah. right? So okay, they, yeah. So they announced this week that they're going to close the Kerch Strait for six months, uh, saying that they're doing a military exercise in the Sea of Azov, um, which will have a devastating impact on Ukraine. Um, and uh, as far as I know, the response has been like. Yeah. So I think actually, if you're listening, it's a podcast, there's no visuals here, but I think it would be really helpful if you if you want to understand why this is so significant, just pull up Google Maps and punch in Kerch Strait, K-E-R-C-H 
straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. And you'll understand that this is an important, just by looking at the geography, it's a very narrow waterway between Russia and, uh, and Crimea, which again was annexed back in 2014, that is essentially the only way to access the eastern part of Ukraine. Is that right? By, uh, by, by sea, sea, anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, so sea. this water separates eastern Ukraine from the Black Sea. And as you mentioned, last week, Russia announced it was closing access to the Kurdish Straits for six months. And what has happened since then? You know, Ukraine's response, and then how important is this strait for Ukraine? And is this potentially this closing? Because it's a, it's a, seems to me a big power play for Russia to do this, right? Because they're essentially not just did they annex Crimea, even though it's technically still Ukraine, right? They're behaving as if it's Russia, and they're basically saying we control this now, and Ukraine's either going to say, no, you don't. And right. How does, where does this go? Well, it is a significant power play and it's, it's, it's one of these things that they'll do because they can, and there won't be any response. And, um, then they did it. Right. And six, I mean, closing, imagine closing like a U.S. port or a coastline for six months. It would, it would devastate the the local economy. Right. Like you could use that as an example. If some, the stupid canal thing where the boat was stuck stuck for like four days and it was like a global crisis, but at a local level, it's devastating to the local economy um, and to Ukrainian sort of shipping and commercial structures overall. Yeah. And so it's, it's really significant. And the Russians have been playing games with this since the annexation. Um, they did this super fun. I think it was, two, I, I've lost all sense of the tra- of time because of COVID and whatever year it is now. But um, I think about two years ago, they did this sort of naval exercise. Um, you, but it was really interesting because they used commercial ships primarily, like crappy fishing boats and whatever mm. else, to totally blockade the Sea of Azov uh, through the Kerch Strait. Um, and then see some Ukrainian ships, um, uh, which I think were maybe I think they were returned, or at least the dudes were finally returned after long negotiations. But um, but they do these kind of power plays, uh, and it's like a constant reminder of that, that that they do have significant supremacy over the Ukrainians in specific areas. Because in the land war, that is not so clear. Um, in eastern Ukraine, it's very much been. Uh, a stalemate in the fighting. The Ukrainians are quite capable. I think it's something we really don't understand enough because we're used to thinking of a sort of Estonia and Georgia, these tiny countries versus Russia. Ukraine has 40 million people. Um, it has a, a, a significant standing army at this point, all of which has been trained in active combat. Um, uh, it needs money to pay its soldiers. I mean, their soldiers make like 500 bucks a month, which is, um, you know, not, not great. Um, but so they need more resources internally to support the war. They need. They have a significant defense industry of their own. They can produce most of what they need in terms of weapons and equipment um, if they have financial support to do so. Um, and I think we really need to focus on this, on just like letting, we always have these nice lines about, yes, we support Ukrainian sovereignty and their ability to defend themselves. Well, let's actually help them defend themselves um, in more significant ways and not and not fall into the Russian trap of calling this stuff, uh, you know, offensive capabilities. Like Russia is fighting a war inside Ukraine, period, end of story. And I think we, we need to just keep repeating we that to ourselves keep, right. and stop falling into this like, 
the constant nonsense and sort of the soft narrative coming out of this region of like, it's the Ukrainians provoking the war. It's in Ukraine. Of course they are yeah. fighting to maintain their well, territory. Well, we didn't have a whole lot of clarity coming from the White House for the last four years. So, you know, it's something worth mentioning and especially from the Ukrainian perspective. And I think we'll see more of it um, sort of discussed in the coming weeks and we should understand why. Um, when it comes to stuff with Russia during the Trump administration, obviously disaster. Everything said publicly, you know, turning blind eyes to things, handing chunks of Syria to Putin. They said they didn't do it. I believe him. He was very convincing. Disasters. (laughs) But, you know, in the region around Russia, which Donald Trump didn't really know existed, he thought the Baltics was the Balkans, like didn't understand anything, didn't care. He hasn't looked up. He has never, he has never punched in the Kurdish Strait in Google Maps. He could not find that with two hands and a flashlight (laughs) and does not care, right? Does not care about any of this stuff. Right. Um, So in this region where he was not engaged uh, or I should say not interfering in the execution of policy, there was a lot of frustration at the end of the Obama administration that uh, not enough was being done to help Ukraine. They weren't providing defensive weapons. They weren't doing a bunch of things for Ukraine. Um, That really changed during the Trump administration because no one was paying attention, which meant the military and uh, sort of the Pentagon aspects of a lot of this work had more freedom to provide training. uh, Some of the defensive weapons that the Ukrainians had had requested, they were allowed to purchase finally. Um, So a lot of things actually did advance in terms of the tactical defensive relationship um, during the Trump years, because he just didn't care and wasn't paying attention and didn't tell anybody to stop it. Um, So at the Ukrainian level... Um, you know, that's very significant that there were these, I mean, the training that we have done in Ukraine um, has been incredibly significant in helping them prepare. Like we're way back from the front. We're nowhere near where the fighting is, but the American support has been really significant in helping them get their most capable units ready for fighting. Um and uh, so that's been really significant. We're not the only ones there. Other NATO partners are there helping also. Um but uh, but this work has been very important and it has felt different in the last four years. And if that suddenly stops or stalls or again gets tied up in this resetty way of we're changing our decisions on our bilateral partnerships with these countries that are being targeted by Russia um, in order to gain some access to some negotiations or talks with Russia, um, again, uh, that's not going to be viewed very positively in the region. So I want to talk about that and, and sort of doubling back to the U.S. response, but but specifically about diplomacy. So last week, Biden proposed a summit, right? You mentioned this with Putin and Russia called the U.S. an adversary. And uh, the goal, Biden's goal was to, quote, uh, build, a, build a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. So here's here's my question. When you were on with John Seifer, who, again, for our listeners, if you, if you haven't listened to that conversation, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. John ran Russia operations for the CIA for a number of years. And one of the things that I remember him saying in that conversation is essentially that where the U.S. relationship is with Russia is essentially out of diplomatic options. There's no more. It's Lucy kicked the football, you know, Lucy in the football too many times. And and we should not be pursuing diplomatic solutions anymore because Russia doesn't take them seriously. So that seems to be, the Biden administration seems to be pulling out that old diplomacy playbook and saying, let's try this again. Am I reading that incorrectly? Is that is that what you see as well or, or m- missing something here? What impact could, you know, if there is to be a high-level diplomatic meeting, 
what impact could that actually have on diffusing the situation? Or are we Charlie Brown again? You're right. Like this is to me, the way that I always try to explain this is, and this is obviously stuff that's very personal for me. I worked in Georgia starting just after the war in 2008 uh, and sort of that period where they were trying to rebuild their relationship with the United States and, and recover from the war. And had it not been for the billion dollar aid package that the U.S. had provided to Georgia to help float their economy, to help rebuild the country, uh, it would have been a very different outcome from what there was. Um, so and this is all really significant, but but seeing how Russia has advanced in the region and targeted these countries who want what we have, who are want to be great partners for America, you know, we sort of one of the reasons we need to understand how significant Ukraine is in terms of its military capabilities, its defense capabilities, um, its potential partnership with NATO as they again turn toward this direction and say we really want to to find a way to get into NATO. How can we prove to you that we can be in NATO? Um, you know, the most significant uh, military in, in NATO after the United States is Turkey. And if you're paying any attention to Turkey, it's kind of a shit show. And there's a lot of fraught, perilous things happening. Uh, they're still a great military partner. They're still very active in NATO operations, but there's a lot of weird stuff happening, especially with Russia, that's not great. Um, and having another significant military force in the alliance that would help revitalize uh, some of the capabilities, particularly as we get tired of bludgeoning the Germans and the French and everybody else to like actually have military capabilities that are useful. You know, it's something that that is just worth thinking about. But that being said, this is all very personal for me because I know these people and I know what they want. And listening to them, listening to people in the region around Russia, whether they be in NATO already or not, constantly have to explain to everybody the fear that they live under of Russian aggression, of the interference in their countries, of what they could potentially lose. When I'm talking to my researchers and they're like, yeah, you know, I live in Odessa and we have plans to go inland because we're all terrified of what's going to happen, especially when Russia's moving landing craft into the Black Sea, right? Like, um, this This is the world. (laughs) This is cyber war. This is the world all these people live in. Uh, And I think so many times we're willing to just minimize it and focus on this if only we can get Moscow to X and it's just fine. We need, you know, we need some policy to engage Russia. I'm probably not the right person to construct that because I do believe it's bullshit and they are going to keep engaging us in these nonsense cycles of, of uh, negotiations and diplomacy to waste time while they prepare for their next attack in advance. Cause it is what we have seen Putin do over and over and over again. Um, you know, we can stay in this stupid cycle of determining all of our other policy around Moscow or understand that we need policies that are not determined by Moscow because right now they have us trapped. We need a separate policy for Ukraine. We need a separate policy for Georgia. We need a separate policy for how we engage our allies. Um, and if Russia decides that it wants to participate in all of these other things as a normal state, Great. But you know what? It doesn't want a stable and predictable relationship with us because its greatest asset right now is its unpredictability and its instability that it wages against the rest of us. And we just need to understand that and stop looking at it the wrong way or we're going to keep losing. And this costs lives. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians have died in this stupid nonsense conflict in eastern Ukraine. That is is like strategic stupidity, right? Yeah. For the Russians, like, what are yeah. you even doing? It costs them tons of money, but it's just like a thing to do to annoy everyone else. And there's no way to talk them down off that ledge. And I just think we need to understand we don't think the way they do. Our mindsets are totally different in the use of power. 
And the same way that when we talked about information warfare, you know, the information aspect of conflict and influence is throughout every aspect of what the Russians do, everything. And they're very clear about this in their doctrine. They're very clear in how they talk about it. Information is critical to to influence and conflict. Um, and, but they also view hard power the same way. And I think we just need to understand that. Like, maybe this deployment of things was to force a diplomatic concession. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's about something else. But the fact that they are willing to use hard power this way, and we are not. Like, we're not even going to send not, our two yeah. stupid warships to, right. like, say hello, is both totally misunderstanding our own leverage and capabilities in these situations, removing our leverage from significant usage in these situations, uh, and starting essentially from zero, where we're constantly in the position of letting the Kremlin dictate the terms. And we just need to change that equation. Do it some other way. Don't do it the way I'm saying, if you don't agree with me. But that is de facto where we are and where we are starting from again. And it just matters. It matters too much for us to get it wrong. So I'm sure that the Biden administration is not naive to any of this, right? They're choosing the diplomatic fallback uh, for a reason. And even if that reason is, well, we, we, don't, we simply don't have the political capital to spend on a much stronger position with Russia, so be it. Do you think that's what's happening here? You know, I never like to, to prognosticate what's happening yeah. in other people's heads. That's I, fair. It, just because it's 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 not fair to them either, and I don't you know I'm not looking at the reams of intelligence that they're getting, and I'm not trying to figure out how to pull our guys out of Afghanistan and calculate this with everything else. I know there's a lot of things on the table. That being said, having lived through this the first time and having seen not just the logical parts of the reset policy, the things that really made sense, right? The idea. That somehow, if you can construct a new engagement structure with Russia that is good faith and goodwill in certain aspects, maybe it will convince them to stop the nonsense and the other things. Like, of course, you can sort of understand the logic behind that from one aspect, but then seeing how it was totally used against us, like, oh, let's have, you know, technology engagement with Russia. Well, guess what? They use that to build a bunch of weapons that now they target us with. Great idea, guys. You know, and like, John Kerry's in charge of this climate thing again. You know what? We can talk to Russia as much as we want about climate. They are weaponizing green movements against us because what they want is for everybody to buy more Russian gas. And number one, like this is how they are destroying politics in Europe. But like, we just don't look at the stuff the same way. It's so frustrating to me that we are again going to play this like, if only we can convince the Kremlin or some piece of the Kremlin, like there's some guys somewhere, the new Medvedev, you know, you can peel off and create like a moderate wing. No, that doesn't exist. It's not going to happen. They're poisoning their opponents. They're poisoning Russians outside of Russia. They're assassinating people wherever they feel like it, including possibly in American soil. Like, this is not a, if only you can convince them that they want to have a a nice dinner with us, then we're all going to be friends again country. Under Putin, it is not going to change. And we just need to stop the cycle of wasting the years of trying to construct a new engagement and backing off from punitive measures and retaliatory measures and better policy with the region around Russia that we should have anyway, because we're waiting for them to show us some sign that maybe everything will be okay. There's no unicorns coming, and we just need to stop waiting for the unicorn to come. So what the White House did do was announce new sanctions on on Russia for their involvement in the 2020 election uh, and the solar winds hack. 
uh, and the movements on the Ukrainian border. So can you walk us through exactly what these sanctions are, ex- like exactly, and what real world impact they're, they're going to have or they could have, both on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but also on the U.S. relationship with Russia? And, and also, we should note that uh, in, in response, retaliation, Russia has just expelled U.S. diplomats um, because they don't like these sanctions. So is, is it going to work? Where, where does that go? I mean, I, I personally don't think, and I think we've seen this over the last 15 years, sanctions don't change Russian behavior. And does it have an impact on XYZ thing? Does it make it harder for these guys to move their icky money out of the country? Sure. But it doesn't really change behavior in any way. That being said, the the package of sanctions and things, which was not insignificant and not to be poo-pooed, uh, was clearly well thought out, was actually really interesting. So there was you know, adding more people who have done bad things to America to the list of of personally sanctioned folk. There were a bunch of technology companies added to the list, which is really important um, to sort of document that these companies have been involved in, you know, state back attack on the United States. Um, there was a really interesting one that was like a Pakistani company that that manufactures fake IDs that the Russians have been using to to verify their yucky, you know, fake accounts online and all sorts of other things. We kicked out 10 diplomats, air quotes, which are most likely the list we gave them was intelligence personnel that were engaged in these attacks on the United States. And the, the sort of most important financial piece um, is that we... Uh, banned the the participation in, I think, Russia's sovereign debt, which won't immediately impact them. I think their state banks can take up the slack on buying the debt. But it's a, it's a much more significant piece in terms of banking sanctions, which more people have been pu- pushing for uh, over the last few years okay. um, than what we've seen previously. So it, and there was like a bunch so of- nothing. No, no, not at all. And there was a bunch more stuff added in terms of detail. Like there were additional sanctions put on Prigozhin, who's the, the oligarch close to Putin, who sort of controls the IRA and, and Wagner Group and a bunch of the sort of mercenary capabilities. Um, and really detailing... Uh, which I think is important just to have on paper, the extensive operations that he has been conducting uh, on behalf of the Kremlin in um, sub-Saharan Africa in the information domain and in terms of mercenary activity. Um, so getting that all on paper is important. Um, and then there was sort of a, an acknowledgement of uh, Konstantin Kalimnik's role um, in the 2016 elections and his long-term role as sort of a Russian intelligence operative operating outside Moscow. That was sort of a, a, an advance in previous statements we'd gotten, including from the Mueller report, really saying he took this polling data from uh, the Manafort team and gave it directly to Russian intelligence at a critical moment during the campaign, which is the first time they've said that directly. So this Not is just, like official recognition yeah. of that. Okay. Which is which is huge. And and again, just to have these things on paper, very important to have. Of course, that has become kind of the focus of a lot of the online kerfuffle today. Uh uh, whether this is, is, you know, collusion or not collusion or, or dragging open collusion wounds again. Um, but I think all of it, the, the, the piece that's on paper is not to be dismissed in that documenting this stuff uh, in an official way for people to see, for people to understand, um, not just Americans, but also our allies, is really, really critical. Like removing that deniability that Kalimnik is what he is, is important. Um, removing the the sort of cloak of shadows about some of the Russian activities in Africa, really important. Um, so all of this is uh, important in terms of advancing how we're thinking about identifying and countering some of these Russian measures in hybrid domains. Um, but zero of that has any impact on 
what is happening in Ukraine right now. God, Molly, every time I talk to you, it's like (laughs) drinking from a fire hose. It's really, really good and useful. So I mentioned at the top of the episode that it feels like for many people, you know, after being laser focused on our domestic politics for so long and trying to keep Trump from driving the bus off of a cliff, we're, we're, we're sort of looking up for the first time, right? Not someone like you, of course, right? But, but many people, I think, are now looking up to the world stage. And, uh, and as we begin to shift our attention back to what's going on internationally and the American position on the world stage, what are you watching? What things should we be looking at uh, in regards to Russia but also, you know, how will the way this situation plays out impact U.S. foreign policy sort of broader? And this is the, the, the new administration's first big headline-grabbing foreign policy exchange. So what's riding on this for the Biden administration? And, you know, how are you thinking about this in the bigger context? You know, to some extent, I really sympathize that they really, really, really wanted to... Uh, move Russia down the list of things, right? Like not be the number one thing every day, but make it like five Mm -hmm. or six. Uh, And Russia, of course, doesn't like being a number. So they're like, hello, we're here. Yeah. Give us the attention. Uh, Exactly. They just, they're going to tweet at you until you acknowledge their presence. But, you know, I do sympathize with that, that there's other things in the world we need to pay attention to. But um, I think we have this range of challenges and the Biden administration is trying to navigate the weird domestic mood about everything. I mean, the the ravaged landscape of the American mind that currently exists really does need to be repaired. And there's so much stuff that they're doing domestically that's sort of focused on this. And they understand that there's almost no appetite anywhere in the American landscape for foreign policy. Uh, left and right, you have these strange isolationist bents that are happening um, that are not great in terms of how we view ourselves in the world and in basic policies like refugees and all sorts of other things. They're really trying to navigate this, and it's why they talk so much about this foreign policy for the middle class, which is kind of an imaginary made-up term. I mean, there's pieces of it that are important, obviously, like trade, but like uh, in terms of uh, trade policy that that doesn't uh, that is more beneficial for the for the middle class that doesn't ignore the impact of big international decisions we're making on, you know, the domestic American landscape. These are really important things. But in terms of the national security piece of it, we have to face it that these are not things that that middle Americans, standard Americans, people who just want to go about their everyday lives are thinking of on a day-to-day basis. This is why you need leadership, right? To explain to people why these things matter uh, and why they're important. And and Biden is really good at this in the 60,000-foot level, in talking about the values, talking about where we stand, talking about leadership, enacting that is harder. There's been some really good stuff happening um, in, in the repair category. Uh, obviously, Tony Blinken going to Brussels and having a positive, handholdy love fest with our NATO allies and our European allies that is not bludgeoning them with a stick, as the Trump administration constantly did, is really important. Same with our Asian allies, uh, you know, going and resetting this tone instead of trying to strong arm them into paying us more for protection, as Trump called it. Uh, but And actually, the Biden administration, by being nicer... Such a mobster. <laughs> such a mobster. Uh, but the Biden administration, by being nicer, managed to negotiate better deals for us with our Asian partners uh, in terms of the the exchanges between us for basing and other things. So all of this is positive. There's good things happening in the, it's the America you knew and love. We're all going to be buddies here again space. And that's 
really important because we really did, I think, not just the Trump administration, but pieces of the Obama uh, era were not so great for our allies rhetorically or in actuality. So all of this stuff is great. But it's the where's the meat on the bones thing that gets sticky. And when it's very clear there's going to be this substantive standoff with Russia in these early days, which no one wants to do. Everybody wants to say, what's this? No, but, but China. Yeah. Let's go to China. Yeah. China is much more important. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants yeah. to talk about China. And I think there was like this little snapshot of how bad all of this is going to be and how the right people are focused on the right things. This week, the worldwide threats hearing, the first component of which happened in the house, which is the Star Wars bar of everything these days. But um, it was a terrible hearing. This, I mean, foreign policy used to be the most bipartisan thing in the United States. Very little disagreement on most policy areas, questions about this, that, or the other thing, but, um, but unified thinking on America must be strong in the world, and when we go abroad, we speak together. Um, that used to be a very real, not cartoon thing. Um, and it's basically just gone. And in this stupid hearing, oh God, it was just painful to watch. This, again, Worldwide threats hearing, you have seven intelligence agency heads spread before you. You're supposed to, this was in the House and the Intelligence Committee. Um, uh, and this is supposed to be the time where you, as a member of Congress, get to ask about these things that you want discussed in public. So, you know, the threat from ISIS, uh, what is Russia doing? What is China doing? What are American forces doing? What will happen if we leave here? Where should we have more? You know, all of these big global things. What were people asking about? Um, well, if you were a Republican, and I'm not joking, bar one person, you were asking about Antifa, uh, about the Steele dossier and Fusion GPS, about the guy who shot up the Republican congressional baseball practice and why the FBI hasn't talked more about the awful Bernie Sanders terrorists in America. I'm, I wanted to gouge my eyes out. And that was bad enough that like serious, re and it wasn't just the clown members. This was like serious members of Congress who have clearly convinced themselves if they're not asking about Antifa's financing and why Antifa isn't a, an organization and not a movement, then they're not like gaining with their voters. But then on the Democratic side, at least half of the questions were just oversight questions. Like, and again, important issues to discuss with these agencies in an oversight capacity, but sexual harassment, inclusivity, uh, are we recruiting enough minorities to be in these agencies? Very important questions to have, not in this hearing. And the fact that while we have Russian military amassing on the Ukrainian border, the U.S. pulling forces out of Afghanistan, which will be extremely significant in what happens in the region for the next five years, you know, all these questions about the future of the Middle East uh, and our presence there and what is going on and the general chaos that will ensue at any given moment. Um, all these other questions about what we're doing in the world and the new threats that are emerging, uh, all the questions about what we should be doing about China. And you have clown questioning from clown people who clearly don't take themselves seriously. And at one point, uh, there was like the one question about it was like 80 minutes in. Somebody finally asked a question about Ukraine um, and, you know, largely deferred to the closed session where they were going to discuss the specifics about how bad it is. But really good answer from um, uh, the new CIA director, Bill Burns, about um, uh, was it him or was it the other guy? Maybe this was in the other hearing the other day. But essentially, there was the one answer in one of these hearings that's been happening this week. Oh, this was the UCOM guy, actually, the other day. But, you know, somebody asked him, um, should we be pulling 
uh, like, why do we do this NATO stuff anymore? Shouldn't we be pulling all of our Europe assets to to focus on China? And his answer was, why like, do we do this NATO stuff anymore? Yeah. Basically, it was like, shouldn't we be moving our focus and commitments to, to Asia? And not, like, who cares about Russia? Let's focus on China. And his answer was, everything we do to deter and offset Russia matters in terms of what we're doing on China because they partner together, they are cooperating together, and if we do not see that, we're completely screwed. And it was exactly the right answer. It is how the military is approaching this problem set. It is how the administration must approach this problem set. I and others have written about this topic, how you cannot separate them or believe that there's some universe where, like, we're going to work with Russia against China or some crap that they keep trying to sell us. But, like... We just need to understand this. Bad guys work together in an extremely cohesive, network-focused way. And right now, the good guys are not focused on the same landscape. And if we want democracy to matter globally, which some people aren't even convinced of anymore, which is also terrifying to me. That's another conversation. Then we need to pin it to the strengthening of democracy at home. And I think... I think at the high level, the, or the the Biden administration gets this, and they're very focused on trying to figure out what it means. But I think the focus on home to the exclusion of things happening abroad, uh, to, to avoid uncomfortable domestic political conversations will fail. And they just need to be aggressive about how they talk about it and inspire Americans to believe in this stuff again in a way that really people haven't since the Iraq war. But there's a world out there to be one uh, for ideas and for freedom and for for what this means for individual lives and for the future of nations. And we just need to be there because what we've seen in in the last decade of us not being there is nobody else is going to step into that space, which is super depressing. Yeah, not Um, in a good way anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not in a good way. Power yeah. a vacuum. Right. <sighs> Molly, uh, where can everyone find you on the internet? Um, the I'm on Twitter at Molly McHugh, uh, at Molly McHugh, just one one thing. Um, and then uh, I write at greatpower.us. I will have a piece on Ukraine up probably by the time this airs, so you can check it out there. Um, but about all of these complexities and what I think we can actually do in U.S. policy to support Ukraine absent a change in Russian behavior. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening today. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. 
If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And I also have a favor to ask. We're developing the future of politicology, and I'd really like your advice. So we built a quick survey to get your thoughts and included a link in the show notes today. Your answers are going to inform a lot of our plans, including Politicology Plus, which I'm excited to share with you soon. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at PoliticologyPod. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.